Today's teaching text comes from the book of Luke, chapter 5, and verses 1 to 11. So that's Luke, chapter 5, 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Amen. Good to see all of you. Doing all right? Great, great. So I'm going to start with a question, uh, and I actually want you, to th- want you to think about it. What do you understand freedom to be? Give you just enough silence to be awkward. Pay attention to what's happening in your mind. Maybe there's an answer to that question beginning to form there. Freedom, freedom, freedom. The ability to believe what I want. The ability to say what I want. The access to things I want. The protection to live how I want. Maybe living in a way where nothing has me under its control. What is freedom? Or maybe you didn't you know, be- begin to think down any of those lines because you thought, I-, I know what's going on here. This is a rhetorical device. He's going to tell us what he thinks it is in a minute. This isn't my first sermon. I'm going to use my freedom to wait for him just to go ahead and say what he thinks it is. Um, in the last 24 hours, I, I have uh, once in a science fiction novel from the 60s and uh, once in a 9-11 documentary on Netflix, I've heard at least a partial definition of freedom that has stuck in my mind. I'm going to give them to you really quickly. The first from the sci-fi novel from the 60s uh, was this. Freedom is the ability to rest when you need to. And when I first heard that, I thought, that's 
That's not enough. That's certainly not a complete picture of freedom. But the more I considered it, the more I thought, you know what? That is actually kind of an important part of freedom. And I thought about something that we said here last week uh, about the the poetry of the first uh, chapter of Torah, the beginning of Genesis 1, um, is all building, especially when you read in the Hebrew, it's all building towards this moment where Sabbath is put forward and resting in relationship, resting in the presence of God is put forward as, as something like the meaning of life. And, and, and this people who's been making bricks for Pharaoh for years and years were relearning how to be human. And one, one of the first things um, that they needed was a, a lesson in freedom and how to rest, to not be defined by production, to not be defined by achievement, but to know who they are through relationship, through Love. So I first heard it in the sci-fi book, Dune, if you're wondering which one. And um, they're going to make a movie. I was like, I should read the book. It's a long, I'm reading audio um, and reading. It's fine. You're, it's fine. So freedom is the ability to rest when you need to. That, that, that sort of stuck in my mind. It got me thinking a little bit. The second definition of freedom was from a military, uh, a medical doctor who had served in Afghanistan And he was referring to what he called a particular American version of freedom, which, this is his definition, um, it's the freedom to live a fiction. And what he meant was to have the resources at your disposal to live in a way that doesn't accord with reality, but for the consequences of that fiction not to catch up with you for a long time. So someone might craft a world however they want it to be in their own words, um, the story that they tell, the posts that they post, the way they treat people, the way they spend money, the way they spend time, the internet sites they visit, and they create a world, a life they make. And even if that life cuts against the grain of reality, they have enough resources to keep a buffer between themselves and the worst of the consequences of that life, or, or in this guy's definition of the lie that they're living. Whether you agree with him or not, this doctor was saying a particular American picture of freedom is to say the world is how you want it to be and no one to be able to tell you differently. And I thought, wow, neither one of these feels like a full picture of freedom to me, and one has certainly you know, uh, got a lot of negativity in it, but no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, that's a pretty interesting vision of freedom to lay over our society. I'm going to think and live exactly how I want to think and live, and what's happening in the rest of the world, even if that's just next door, doesn't have to matter to me in any real pressing way. I have the resources to set it up how I want it. I have the resources to retreat into comfort or to entertainment or to distraction or to people who agree with me however I want. So, two pictures of freedom. And however close or far they are from the full picture of freedom, they got me thinking about the full picture, you know? I hope maybe you are thinking now about the full picture. What is freedom? How, 
how would I define true freedom? How would, let's imagine since we're in church, how would God understand true freedom? How would the most free being in the universe unfold what freedom is to us? Another thing these definitions of freedom got me to consider is, is my own life in a, in a sort of like narrative way. And, and there have been times in my life when I would say I was taking the most liberties for myself. And, and there's seasons of this, and then there's sometimes just individual one-off days of this, but um, where, you know, I'm doing basically in a given space of time whatever I, whatever I want. And I'm living quite selfishly when I look back on these times. But something interesting about the overlap of these two definitions is that I found in those times where I'm living the most selfishly, I often find my rest to be more and more degraded. The more I live just for myself, the less peace I actually experience. And I'm not putting that as my experience completely on you, but I see a few heads nodding and maybe some of you can relate to that reality. The more I indulge a certain self-oriented vision of freedom, the more I get ensnared in that very selfishness. And the, the more actually diminished my experience becomes, the more diminished my days are. So there is a way that I can use my freedom that seems to put me in a less free place. Thank you for participating in this thought experiment with me. I want to ask you to hold those, those things in your mind for just a moment, and we're going to get to this text. We, we meet Simon on the pages of the New Testament in the accounts of the Gospels, and And we meet a man who has a small section of freedom that he has carved out for himself in a world where freedom can be hard to come by. It's the ancient Near East. It's in Galilee. Israel is occupied by Rome, as is much of the world. And we know historically just just before the pages of the New Testament opened, there were some really violent um, demonstrations of Rome's power. Literally into Simon's neighborhood, people were put on crosses lining the road just to say, don't forget who's in charge here. So there's a longing for freedom in this society and in, in, in probably in Simon's own heart, a longing for liberation. We see it show up in messianic expectation in the Jewish people of the first century. But even inside that world, Simon had some little space for himself. He had the family fishing business. And certainly he's, he's more than likely really heavily taxed, probably struggling to make ends meet in and out of season, but he has something. He owns the boat. And so we know from before we meet him here in Luke 5 that he's begun to have some encounters with this mysterious figure, Jesus, um, that Jesus is actually in the timeline of of Simon's life, um, probably already invited him to follow him, and Simon seemed to say yes, but then he's gone back to fishing, which is a repeated pattern in his life. Simon seems to be struggling with which story he's going to live out of. And, and we also know just literally just before this in, in, the, in the passage of the scripture, um, Simon's wife's mother was very sick. In a world in, of, of sort of limited medical options, um, one of the things that really drew people to Jesus was the ability to say, you're better now, and they were. And that happens to Simon's mother-in-law. She experiences healing. But Simon still seems to be wrestling 
right? He had, even in this world of, of oppression, you know, on some level, he had some space of freedom and provision that he knew. It was his family business, his place in it, where he was the expert, the place literally where the shores of the rest of life could be kept at a distance. And Luke 5 gives us this defining, shaping, turning point moment in Simon's life. I kind of want to stop again and ask you to think about, um, I've been in some exercises where people are getting to know one another, and one of the real work of the church over the next you know, couple of months this season, I think is going to be to get to know one another again. And in and, and an exercise, um, actually, where one of our other pastors, David, was leaving, he, he divided a, a section of paper into four um, sections, and he said, I want you to draw a picture of four moments that you think are defining moments in your life. So everyone draws for like 10 minutes, and then we went around and we shared what those those defining moments were. So I want you to think for just a second about what your four quadrants would be. What are the defining moments of your life? Because we're about to read one in Simon's life, a defining, life-shaping moment. What are yours? I'm also, I want to warn you, I'm going to pronounce the lake differently than Emily did, okay? And that's okay. This is a safe place. I think you're probably more right. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God, and he saw at the water's edge two boats there left by the fishermen, one who, uh, who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. So Jesus this rabbi who is outside of the normal rabbi process um, is beginning to call disciples, people to follow him, also outside of the normal rabbi process of the day. But he is following some of the traditions. He gets out and he sits down, which was the posture for a rabbi giving teaching, and he begins to explain the kingdom of God. And after this, we have this defining moment in Simon's life. And I want to ask you, have you ever had a moment like this where uh, where you've been up all night and your hands are aching and sore? where you've just worked yourself to the bone all day or even worse, all night, where you've been utterly exhausted, not just physically, but emotionally. You were just absolutely done. That's where we find Simon, washing the nets after being up all night long. The thing that's his little corner of freedom in a world of oppression, his little space where he can provide, where he can be the captain of the ship, and he's come back completely empty-handed. I want to know, have you ever been in a place where you were the one who knew what was going on? You were the one with proven experience and someone with far less credentials is trying to tell you what to do? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I saw a New Yorker cartoon uh, a couple of weeks ago of two people at dinner and the, the, the woman is talking and the man interrupts her and he says, can I interrupt your expertise with my enthusiasm? <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's... Uh... But I, don't you think Simon must have felt a little bit like that? Like, you know, here's Rabbi Jesus teaching Torah, teaching kingdom, and then turning around and being like, well, let me tell you a little bit about fishing too, guys. What? 
But something about Jesus had begun to intrigue Simon just enough that even though he's bone tired, even though we can imagine he is at the end of himself, he's intrigued just enough to go forward. I would say if we were building off of what we were talking about last week, the presence of Jesus had begun to make enough difference in Simon's life that he begins to surrender to the formation of Jesus. We've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but because it is you, I will try this. So we know Simon's going to become Peter. He's going to become the rock. We know a lot about his life, a lot to be celebrated. But I think it's really interesting that this invitation to obedience comes in the regular rhythm of his daily work life. He's sitting there washing nets when he's bone tired and frustrated. That is where the miracle begins. I don't know about you, but I often, I, I think it's some big dramatic step that God's going to ask me to, 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 to move into. That's going to be the defining moment of, of my life, right? Some challenge or, or God's going to extend an offer to me that, that's, that's you know, going to really d- define everything. But over and over again, it plays out in our food, in our rest, in our Willingness or unwillingness to move into forgiveness or confession or simple trust. It's often just little moments of prayer in the morning or, or in the evening. It's some unseen kindness or, or listening with compassion in our small group or, or our hands uh, quietly raised in the cool of the evening or some secret generosity. Often it is those small moments in the regular rhythm of our actual life, sometimes when we're bone tired and frustrated, that the invitation of Jesus comes to us. And I want you to look at what happens. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. What was happening in their minds at this moment? It must have been absolutely you know, like o- o- overwhelming. They, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they filled the boats so full that they began to sink. Already, Jesus begins to challenge Simon's scarcity mentality, his control of his little section of the world with this abundance of the kingdom of God, this different type of life. And it's a wrestle that goes on throughout the rest of Simon who becomes Peter's life all the way to the very end. He wrestles with this exact thing. But there's incredible provision when Simon Peter saw this. Now that's an important note in the text. It's the first time his other name is used. He's Simon, 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 Simon Peter. Almost like you begin to see this little moment of transformation taking place. He's becoming Peter. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now what on earth is that about? Jesus was near the whole time And now all of a sudden, something is revealed about who Jesus is. The presence of Jesus becomes something to him that he needs to get distance from. What's going on with that? We talked last week about this reality that the presence of God seems to be the thing the Scriptures is holding forth as the greatest possibility for human life to to live in the presence of God. But there is some intimidation, some incompatibility with the fully revealed presence of God and our sinfulness and brokenness. And you see this in Peter's response, get away from me. And ultimately, Jesus is going through the process of his own redemption. We're going to see this played out in Peter's life. Is he going to finally be able to receive the embrace of a holy God through 
what Jesus does for him, what Jesus does for all of us. I wanna, I, I, I'm telling you Simon Peter's story because I think for many of us, it's our story as well. Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He has an experience of God's holiness. Presence, if you want to say it this way, presence is recognized for what it is. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Jesus gives him an invitation into a different type of life, a reorientation of his priorities, a reorientation, basically how he understands himself what he wants most in life and how he's going to go about living on a daily basis. That's extended to him in this invitation from Jesus. So from a sense of presence, he steps into a process of formation. We're in three weeks at Trinity Grace of talking about our central vision as a church, and this story helps get at, at, at the elements. Presence, formation, and love. To be with God, to be formed in the way of Jesus, that the actual character of Jesus becomes our character, and then to live in a way of active love empowered by the Holy Spirit. In a very real way, Peter's story is like all of our story. He experiences the presence of, a, of Jesus. He, he begins to realize who, uh, who God is, and that, that begins to help him recognize who he is. And so he enters and participates in this process of formation. That means following Jesus. Sometimes that means watching Jesus take a nap. Sometimes that means eating a meal with Jesus. Sometimes that means listening to Jesus' teaching. Sometimes that means seeing Jesus forgive someone or heal someone. Sometimes that means Jesus sending him out, whether he feels qualified or not, to participate in the things that Jesus has been doing. And then coming back and saying, hey, what was that like? What was that experience like? So presence, formation, and this life of active love. And ultimately, that life of love is fully empowered by the Spirit because Peter is the one who's there at Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out. And this whole new way of being human breaks into the world. He hears the call of Jesus to follow the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. This is what formation means for us. And, and I'm I, we've, we've looked at the narrative for just a few minutes. I'm just going to tell you like 12 different things that, that we believe this means for our story as a church. We want to hear the call of Jesus and walk in the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. This is how our formation happens. It, this is how we live in, in not just the story that our culture gives us or our family of origin gives us or our, our life choices gives us. This is how we live in the story of the kingdom of God. A vision of freedom, a full life uh, that's all invited by this gospel and that we don't do this alone. So again, saying it to you really simply, Peter is invited in and he goes back to fishing and then Jesus comes and finds him. And there's a miracle of healing in his family. And then his name is changed, but he still goes back to fishing. And then um, uh, all that's before he's really done anything. But then pa Jesus patiently brings him through many failures. And it's not just this story. He goes back to fishing a bunch of times. And the crucial moment of Jesus being arrested and betrayed, we know, G you know Peter promises with full you know, gusto, I, if everyone else flees, I won't flee. If, I'm willing to die for you. And then he denies him three times around the fire 
We have the betrayal. We have the restoration. Ultimately, Jesus makes a fire with Peter at the, at the very end of the gospel accounts. After the betrayal, he basically does some theater and recreates the exact scene of Peter's worst betrayal, and he walks him back through each betrayal, and he, he has him reaffirm his love, and he restores his heart entirely. This process of formation that we see beginning here, and then Peter's filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, and this guy who was, who was hiding in fear and denying Jesus stands up in the streets of Jerusalem and begins to proclaim this new way of being human in connection with God. So how do you change? How do I change? How does, P- how does Peter change? There's this picture of what's possible, and then there's a bunch of steps along the way to, to get to that. You, we're, we're familiar with this. Josh mentioned training for a race. I'm doing um, training for the New York City Marathon. I've mentioned this before, but um, at the 16 weeks at the beginning, like when you're, really, when you're out of shape and if you were to try to run a marathon, you couldn't do it, but you have a picture of yourself on that day crossing the finish line alive and getting your snack and getting your medal and then collapsing and then getting the cool blanket and then trying to find your family in the madness. And like, I signed up for this. This is my activity. But you have 16 weeks along the way, and some days are rest days, and some days are really hard run days. And yesterday, I had the second long run in a row that I absolutely busted on. I didn't finish. I went home just like dragging and frustrated. What am I going to do? Do I give up on my picture of crossing the finish line on November 7th, or do I just do the next thing? You see this with Peter, right? There's a picture that that Jesus has for his life, and there's, a, there's steps in the process, and he's not saying, I want you to give me all this wild commitment that you can stir up in your heart about how you're going to get there you know, by your willpower. No, it's like just walk in the process of formation, and by the end of the 16 weeks, you're going to be someone different than you were when you started this training process. And Peter, walk with me these three years, and even though one of your most spectacular failures is going to happen near the end of the process of these three years together, you're still going to be someone different by the end than you were at the beginning. And that is is part of how Jesus transforms us, changes us, is how we change. For years in our church, when we've talked about what changes in someone's life when they become a follower of Jesus, we put it this way, their identity, their desires, and the rhythms of their life. I think you see this in Peter. I think many of you will have seen this in your life. Who I am, who I understand myself to be, how I think and believe God thinks and feels about me begins to change. There's this identity level change. And then that filters down into what I want most begins to shift as well. I used to be living out of one story and this is what success and fullness and abundance look like. And now I'm living out of this slightly different story. Oh, actually it's entirely different. It's rooted in a whole different thing. So my desires begin to change. And then that has to mean the actual things I do, the rhythms of my life. Life begin to change. Who you are, what you want, how you live. We see this with Peter. His name has changed. He's given a new identity. He, 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 what he wants most begins to change, and then he lives day to day in that process. Fits and starts, faltering, but in the process, in the relationship. Dallas Willard famously said that for a for a person, if you want to give them a reliable pattern of spiritual change, what they're going to need is vision, intention, and means. I'm giving you a lot of three things today. That's uh, my pastoral prerogative. I'm allowed to do that. You can check the manual. 
Vision, intention, and means. Basically, we need a picture of where we're going. Um, and then we have to commit intention. We have to commit to going that way in the process in love. And then means we have to have a, a, a life. We have to have steps along the way that we do together. Vision, intention, and means. And this is something we're going to have to live out together. I can't give you all of this, all of formation, right, in one sermon, obviously, but it's the call of Jesus to follow the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. And that transforms your identity, desires, rhythms. Who we are, what we want most, how we live. We're, we're getting this. You guys are smart. I want to bounce over to Ephesians as we close. A pastoral trick because we're not that close to closing. No, we are. We're close. Everyone's. Um, and I just want to give you a vision. Okay, a vision that I think Jesus has for each of us that can be part of that vision intention means that Dallas Willard is talking about. Here's Ephesians 4. Many of you will have heard this passage before, but let's hear it fresh. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So uh, we're going to get into this, but these... Um, callings and giftings and community in the church is there to help us be equipped, be given what we need, have the wounds of our life healed, be, be literally made new on, on a regular basis so that we can live into what? This fullness of being unified in our faith and our knowledge of the Son of God, mature and have the fullness of Christ. That's to happen so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So there will be integrity between who Jesus is and who his body is. And that's one of the most disillusioning parts of people's experience with the church is here's Jesus and here's the body and they seem to be wildly different. But Jesus is saying my picture is that there would be integrity, there would be holistic unity between who I am and who my body is, that they would actually, the church would be the hands and feet of Jesus expressing the heart, the character, the life of Jesus in a tangible way. This is the crazy, wild, huge calling that God has for Trinity Grace is that people would come here and be able to experience the actual real life of Jesus through you and me. And you're like, Jesus, there should have been another way. He's like, no, I'm going to use you. I'm so committed to it. I literally died for it. No, no other way? You don't want to go around yourself on a PR campaign around the world every generation? I think it will work amazingly. No, they're going to come in. They're going to see how I am by how you love one another. Woo. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want to tell you, Jesus has a tremendous vision for you in the fullness of Jesus. He has a tremendous vision for this church to be a little outpost of the kingdom of God in Brooklyn and demonstrating what Jesus is really like in love and action. And every single one of you has a massive part to play in that. We can't do it alone. 
This is one of several places in the New Testament where God gives us his vision for us in community. It's laid out, and it's a bunch of specifically called and gifted people loving one another so well that we're built up into this fullness. It's a shared, here's what it is. It's a shared confidence and union with Jesus. We have a shared faith and a shared knowledge, and the knowledge is like this really intimate word. Sometimes it's used for, you know, like Adam knew Eve. It's like really intimate knowledge. It's not just like I have some ideas about God aligned in my head the right way. No, it's I'm walking in intimate connection with Jesus, utterly knowing who we are and who we are together in Christ. And then maturity. If our world was ever crying out for anything, (laughs) maturity. (laughs) To handle the wildness of life in a broken world and still live abundant. (laughs) still be true, still chart a course, still be compassionate, still be loving. This implies wisdom and kindness for life. It's connected to this Hebrew concept of shalom. It's basically what love looks like in any situation. That's the picture of maturity here. And that big headline is fullness in Christ. Bone tired, washing your nets. That's many of our experience. I'm sitting around playing with the materials that aren't satisfying my life. Jesus comes and says, put your nets on the other side. And all of a sudden we realize we're not lacking anything that we truly need and nothing that we truly need can be taken from us. The passage says it also keeps us from a stunted type of life where we stay in a prolonged infancy, where we're blown and tossed in regular instability, and where we're really susceptible to deception. We don't even have time to unpack each of those three things, but if we look around at our world, and many of us in our own hearts, we see this this repeated return to infancy, this 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 challenge with instability, this you know like susceptibility to deception. Jesus is saying the fullness, the vision I have for you is a life that that is actually freedom, (laughs) that is actually fullness, that is actually love, that is actually abundance. It keeps you from a life where you both aren't living the truth and you have no real rest. Jesus seems to show us over and over again that the highest use of freedom is love. And the freest being in the universe keeps getting more and more constrained all the way down to the point where he's nailed to one place for the sake of love. So that the wildest freedom you can possibly imagine gets unleashed from that work of redemption in our hearts. Let your life be formed by the love of God and you will truly be free. The New Testament says it more pithy than that. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And I hear that it's not for me the false, small freedom of selfishness. It's the freedom to know the heights and depths of a love I was always meant for. The freedom to put down my net in a different place and to bring up more than I ever imagined possible. And it's not something I can do alone. Listen, church, this is our vision. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So integrity, holistic union with Jesus, 
says, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Hearing the call of Jesus to follow the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. Here's the responses I want to invite you to today. Presence and formation. These are the first two sort of pillars of our vision as a church community, to be with God and to become like Jesus. Some of you... You missed last week or you're still in a place where the most desperate need you can identify in your life is that you need to have an experience of God's presence. You need to hear Jesus say your name. You need to hear Jesus invite you into a process. You need to hear Jesus like offer you embrace, give you that healing. The parts of Peter's story that's before this, this, this passage is some of you, you don't need to jump into a long process of formation. You just need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so some of you this morning, I wanna invite you to ask God and maybe even to ask someone to pray for you here that you would experience the presence of God in a realized way today. But for others who said, no, I have, I have experienced that. It is literally the joy of my life. When I sense God is near, that's everything. It's so beautiful. And I know he's near all the time, but there's sometimes where it just becomes, oh, wow, you are here and you're speaking and you know me and you love me. For those, I want you to have two, two other possible responses. One is to say yes to Jesus, to enter a process of formation where his vision for your life is being formed to say yes to Jesus, to say, yeah, for, for today, I'll put the nets down on the other side. Tomorrow, I'll walk with you over here to Samaria or wherever we're going. We'll have breakfast. I'll get you food while you sit at the well and talk to this lady. It's to enter the process of formation where we're, that we're weaned off this other alternative lesser story into the story of the kingdom of God. The second part of that is not to do it alone, I'm not talking about you just by yourself following Jesus out of, your, out of your strength and willpower and the enthusiasm of your response to this amazing sermon. I'm talking about you getting with other people and saying, I want to know you, I want you to know me, and whatever that Ephesians 4 thing is talking about, the magic that seems to be happening there, I want us to do that together. So I want you... The massive commitment of our church for this fall, from now until Christmas, is that you find a group of people to grow with. Find a group of people to follow Jesus with. Find a group of people to be formed with. As spectacular as our church services are, they're not going to be enough to walk with you on a daily basis through a process of formation to be like Jesus and the full vision he has for you. You need to do this with other people. And if I could call you to any one single response today, it's to make a commitment to get with other people and follow Jesus together. That is where the magic happens. The pandemic has done something, <laughs> lots of things, but one is it's threatened our sense of need of one another. There is a locality necessary in following Jesus in community that can't be replaced online. And I am as grateful as anyone for Zoom and for what it's done and how it's sustained our church. And there's a lot that's possible, but you need to be around people and smell their breath. You need to be around people and eat their cooking. You need to be around people and feel their embrace. I was listening to Dr. Katya Adams from the table in Boston going off on this this week, and it just stirred my heart. She said, you need the church because you need to be offended. 
You need to be challenged. You need to be inconvenienced. One of the very best parts of Christian community is you don't pick it. People aren't in this room because they exactly align with your preferences. They exactly align with your story. In Jesus' little group of 12, you have Matthew the tax collector, totally selling out his neighbors to work for the occupying power of Rome. And you have Simon the zealot, who's like, I live in the mountains with this group of people plotting violence to overthrow Rome. Same team. What? You don't understand the difference between the right and the left in America right now. That's my voice. I do sometimes. I'm sorry. You know what my conversation with my mom was like on vacation? Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector. I know they were just on opposite sides, but now here they are. At the table of Jesus, you need your life to connect with real people in real ways. Someone to hug, someone to eat with, someone to confess a struggle to, someone to pray with, someone to dream up ways to love your neighbor with, someone to learn from, someone to have compassion on, someone to be forgiven by, someone to be annoyed at and then be okay, someone to sing when you can't, someone to remember a promise that you have forgotten, someone to sit in awkward silence with, someone to belly laugh with, someone to sense that Jesus is close with, to hear the call of Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. So who you are, what you want, and how you live is transformed, presence, formation, and love. So I'm gonna give you the responses one more time. For some of you, it's just to ask God for a sense that God is near. Make your presence known. The second is to say yes to Jesus' pathway of formation in your life. Whatever you've got for me, Jesus, I want to present my life as a a regular surrender. The New Testament picture is a living sacrifice to you to go through the process of you calling me to be who who I've always meant to be and then to not go alone. tgcparkslope.com slash formation There's just like a bare bones sort of recap of what we've just talked about here. But there's also every one of you can find a group, either one that's already going or we're starting a bunch of new ones on October 3rd, groups for you to follow Jesus with, to grow with, to be known by, to know. You can find them on tgcparkslope.com slash formation. Don't do this alone. The full and most free life is a life of love, a life of holiness a life of union with God through Jesus by his Holy Spirit. God is staggeringly enthusiastic about the picture of what your life is going to become. And that little pull between Simon and Peter is in us. He's inviting us into this process of formation with him and with one another. Let's go. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for each person who takes a small step of faith to say, God, I want to know that you're near today, that you would pour out a sense of your presence, a sense of your nearness. I pray for those who say yes to you, Jesus, to enter a process of formation, that you would meet them with everything that they need. God, I pray for those who are stumbling out in faith and say, all right, I'll try. I'll look for a group. I'll try to connect. I pray that they would be embraced. They would, they, they, they would overcome disappointment, and they would be folded into a sense of family, 
Would you do these impossible things in our midst by your Holy Spirit? Can we put down our nets on the other side and pull in more than we thought possible? Do this in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen.